Lord, I would ask that you, you join us this morning, that you direct the word. We thank you for the word that you've left us to be able to use and direct our lives. And I just ask you bless this time that we have together and bless the message and let it be your word spoken and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to get into the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter is the writer of the book and has written, the book was written about 30 years after the death of Christ and his burial and resurrection. Uh, Peter is born about a year before Christ was um, for his virgin birth, and so Peter lived to be just about 70 years old. Peter is born by the name of Simon, and he was given the name Peter by Jesus, Peter meaning the rock, and Peter was the first follower of Christ uh, along, with his, along with his brother Andrew. Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and, Christ, and he saw Simon and Andrew fishing, and you know, we've all heard the story called to them and said, you know, let follow me and be fishers of men. And so that's kind of how, how Peter got started there. Peter spent about three years with Jesus as his discipleship training, which is probably better training than any person could get. I know I had, you know, I learned a lot under my discipleship with Pastor Bill, and, you know, he taught me a lot, but it's nothing that could compare to spending three years under the discipleship of Christ, which that's a pretty amazing thing that Peter got. Peter was bold like, you know, like, Peter was bold, and like most of us, he was quick to speak and slow to think. Uh, he denied Jesus three times, even though he was told that he was going to do it. He still fell into the trap and did it. He suffered you know, great regret for doing so, but he's like the rest of us, and he falls. We see in Matthew 16, 22, where Peter, he rebukes Jesus for telling of his pending death, you know, burial, and resurrection, and the suffering he's going to go through. And he, Peter said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And the Lord responds, get behind me, Satan. So, you know, Peter wasn't always thinking ahead about what what he was listening to. And I think we can all relate to speaking out when we hear something without taking the time to think and listen and look at the bigger picture of things and then regret that we ever opened our mouths on some of those things. Uh, Peter was a rough and tough man's man kind of guy. He was a fisherman, which in those days was a really serious labor. I knew... You went out and it was hard physical labor. You didn't have a bunch of pulleys and things working and machines helping you pull all the fish in. They had to do that all by themselves. Uh, we know they knew how to use a sword because we can see when the soldiers went for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter pulled out his sword and sliced off the ear of one of the soldiers there. And you know, Jesus was quick to pick it up and put it back on and heal, unfortunately. But uh, even, even with that, the soldiers, they, they still took Jesus in. They were either too stubborn and refused to believe, or they were blinded from the truth, so, you know, so that God's plan would be fulfilled that day. After Jesus' death, Peter gave his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, addressing the crowd and explaining the events that were taking place, speaking in tongues, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and how it was foretold in the book of Joel. And Peter continues leading ministry throughout the region of Jerusalem, and up into Samaria, and into Antioch, over to Ephesus, up to Corinth, and then eventually making his way all the way up into Rome. And it's from Rome that Peter writes this epistle to the Christians that have been scattered from, from the area of Jerusalem. The book of First Peter has five chapters, and each one of them kind of has its own specific area that it speaks about. The first chapter speaks on how precious is our faith. The second chapter, how God chose us. The third chapter, love each other. The fourth chapter talks about the sufferings of Christians. And the fifth chapter talks about humility. Today we're probably only going to get through the first book and a half, or first chapter and a half, but 
Uh, we'll go through, you can go through the rest later, or when I end up back up here again, I'll continue probably. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with verse 1. It reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter begins the epistle introducing himself as an apostle of Christ. So to be an apostle is a calling for some of those that were disciples under Christ and that had been in his presence and under him and his instruction, or to have been called and been in his presence after the resurrection, such as you would see Paul, who was originally named Saul. So Peter addresses the letter to to the exiles scattered throughout the region. And the ones that were scattered through the region he refers to are the Christians who were being persecuted in Jerusalem and pushed out. And so he's sending this message to them, you know, specifically to them, but not only them. And so principally it's to them and the Jewish believers, but the next line shows that it also applies to all the believers, not just the Jews. And in verse 2 it reads, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. It says those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So what, what does that mean? What is the foreknowledge of God? It means that those that God chose before creation, those whose names are written in the book of life, that he chose, even though we run into the situation with uh, our own free will, that God chose us even before he created us that we would be saved. And then that brings up the question, does that mean that God chose those who would be condemned? The answer would be no. That we are given free will and God knows because he's outside of the linear time that we live in, he knows who it is that's going to choose him. And so we've, he's chosen us and we have chose him with our free will as well. So he continues, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, meaning that we have the Spirit of God living and working in us each and every day. And it helps us to be obedient to Jesus Christ, whose debt to sin has been, you know, us, whose debt, our debt has been paid by the spilling of the blood of Christ. And then Peter finishes the introduction with wishing us abundant grace and peace. And now we kind of get into the the message of the epistle now, starting in verses 3 through 4. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his, many, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Praise God that he has given us hope by mercy through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Without God's mercy and the resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. So... What is the hope that we have as believers? What's the hope that we claim to hold on to and grasp grasp to? It's from the death of our sin into everlasting inheritance in heaven. This inheritance isn't like the ones of the world that get old or lose their value. I've been to some estate sales and I've seen items for sale at those sales where the kids have inherited the things and they have no interest in having them anymore. They're just selling them off. They don't want them. It might be like a fine en- fine oak entertainment center or some fine cut crystal. And they're things that have gone out of style or kind of just lost their value. You know, they may have been worth a lot in their time, but the value has faded, and with the changing of times, they're just not interested in having them anymore. So the inheritance that Peter writes about here will never perish. 
spoiler fade. It's held secure in heaven for us. The hope we have is in an everlasting life in heaven where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain or tears. We'll leave behind the things of this world and with it, we'll leave our fallen nature. We'll inherit our glorified bodies and we'll no longer be pulled by our own worldly desires. And then verses 5, 5 and 6. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It is through our faith that we're protected by God's power until the end. We know that no harm can come to us and no harm will come that will hurt us in the long term. Everything, you know, might be painful now, but in the bigger scheme of things, it'll mean nothing to us. We may suffer and go through trials and the important thing is that we know that it's a very temporary situation. We see this in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where it reads, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we know that we are protected by God and we rejoice in that. And the worst that can happen to us in this life is death. So we die. Amen. You know, that's, that's a great thing. We'll rejoice all the more knowing that our destiny through our faith is Jesus Christ. A friend of mine died just a couple of weeks ago. He was 66 years old, and he was driving home from work. And he pulled off on the, on the freeway and had a massive heart attack in his car and died right there. And it might sound like a tragic story, and in some ways, you know, it is. But I rejoice in his death because I know that not only was he a believer, but he was also a Jew. So he was a completed Jew who believed in Christ. He believed in the Messiah. And so I know that where he is today, his trials and his suffering... They're all over. He's in a better place. And so praise the Lord for that. Verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The trials that we endure are so... The trials that we endure so that by our faith, we might give praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. It's easy to look, at, to look like you have a strong faith when everything's going well. You know, everything's going good. God's blessing you. And so it's easy to look like you have strong faith because you're strong in the Lord. Things are good. And it's, there's no trials. There's no testing of your faith at that point. The genuineness of our faith is really seen when the trials come. It's like somebody saying, you know, when times get hard, you can see who your real friends are. And when you, things are really difficult, who are the people that are still there by your side and that stand with you? In those times, we need to look at, you know, how do we react to those times? Do we panic? Do we have anxiety? Do we seek out our own solutions, our own way to get out of the problems? Or do we recognize, as it says in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Do we trust in him and not our own understanding, as it says in Proverbs 3, 5? When, when we can find ourselves in troublesome situations and still not worry about it, knowing that God is at work and it's all part of a larger plan that we simply don't understand, that's when our faith is proven genuine. 
This is not for the benefit of others, even though that might be a byproduct of it, that they see us standing strong in our faith, and that helps to build them up. But that's not the, the reason that we go through the trials. It isn't for the benefit of others. It's for our own benefit. And so that we can grow in our faith and all the more be secure in the hope that we carry, the hope that we carry within in Jesus Christ. That's when we can recognize that our faith is greater than pure gold refined by the fire. Because even, even that's going to perish with all things at the end of the world. But through Christ, we will not perish, but we will live eternally. When we've made it through the trial and we can look back and see, see for ourselves that we made it through with the help of Christ and that we didn't abandon our trust in him in the time of trouble, that's when our faith grows. We see that we, we're not abandoned and we see that our faith held firm when it was tested. That's when our faith can really grow. We know that we're strong in our faith because it held firm. It did, we didn't turn from it. And then verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Have any of you seen Christ? Chances are you haven't. I certainly haven't. That would be an awesome thing to have happen, but not yet. I'm not quite ready for that one yet, I don't think. So even though we haven't seen him, we love him and we believe in him. We're blessed by that belief, and we can see that in the book of John, when Jesus appears to Thomas, the famous doubting Thomas, who has to see everything for himself. It reads in John 20, uh, 20, 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So we're blessed by our belief. That belief gives us our salvation in Christ. The salvation for our souls. And it's this salvation which is the end result of our faith in it. Our faith that fills us with that inexpressible and glorious joy. This is something we, we can only have through Christ. It's not of this world. It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we've done anything for. It's simply through Christ. There's nothing in the world that can compare to the security of our future beyond this world. And then verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to be or was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now Peter turns to the work of the prophets. He tells us of the grace they spoke of that was to come to us. They spent their lives searching and trying to understand the things concerning the Messiah. It's something they spent all their time, you know, they're in prayer and God revealing things to them and they're searching to understand what it was that was coming. And they were filled with the Spirit of Christ pointing them to the suffering of the Messiah that was to come and the glory to follow that suffering. They wanted to know the time and circumstances of the events that were going to come. And the books of the Old Testament prophesy the time and the circumstances of the coming of Christ. We see in Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth of Emmanuel, meaning, the, meaning God with us. We see in Micah 5.2, he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. In Zechariah 9.9, we see he would come riding on the foal of a donkey. In Daniel 9, we can see he was 
to return with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We can see when that was. We can see he would suffer, he'd be rejected, he'd bring salvation. And the list goes on and on of all the, all the direction we could see in the Old Testament that the prophets were writing about. And the prophets saw those things and they wrote them down as God directed them. But the Jewish leaders, they didn't see them. Even though they had the information before them, they didn't recognize it. They couldn't hold on to it. They didn't grasp it. In verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. The work of the prophets was not for them, but it was all for us. The work that they did is to show us, even though the Jews didn't get it. The coming salvation was something that the prophets knew was coming. And the Jews as a group, they had the scriptures letting them know all the information. They knew what was coming. But the salvation would not be for them as a group because they were blinded from the truth. They just couldn't see it. They rejected Jesus and they failed to accept him. Now the salvation is for us. Those that have heard the gospel message through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's such a privilege that oftentimes we, we don't notice that or don't recognize how much of a privilege it is that, that we are able to see the message and, and be able to take hold of it. It can even be taken for granted by a lot of people a lot of times. And then the final verse of that, or the, and then the verse finishes, even the angels long to look into these things. So the angels in heaven want to be able to study the salvation. They want to understand it. But it seems clear that they can't, that they're, they're left longing while we can study it and, above all, receive the salvation preached through the gospel message. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought before you or brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you, when you lived in ignorance. With minds that are sober and alert. What does that mean for us? In the King James it reads, gird up the loins of your mind. So that's a cultural term that without some background kind of sounds a little unclear. You know, gird up the loins of your mind. So in biblical time when this was written, the people wore long robes, long flowing robes that went you know, all the way down to their ankles. And so... When you're getting ready to start a journey or getting ready to kind of dig in and do some work, you'd take that and you'd pull it up and kind of tuck it into your, into your belt and kind of gird it up because it would make it shorter and easier to move around. It was kind of a cultural term that meant, you know, let, let's get to work. Let's do something. It's kind of you're, you're not just walking along, but you're going to actually take some action. So here we're looking at, you know, get your mind to work. Be sober and don't be casual about it. And this is... Something like, let's really get ready to dig into it and do some labor here. So we are to set our hope on the grace to be brought when Christ returns. The salvation that we get, and we don't even really deserve with all the sin that we've committed in our lives and even continue to commit in our lives, we should be as obedient children, doing what God has instructed us to do. We should not conform to the evil, that evil desires like when we, are, when we lived in ignorance, that means that we shouldn't live as we did before we are saved. We shouldn't continue to have the same life that we had before we got saved by Christ. 
If your life looks exactly the same as before you got saved, and it looks like that today, you might want to question if you really truly believed and truly have accepted Christ and that you truly are saved. So when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're changed. It might be a long and slow process. You know, it's not immediate. As soon as you, you know, say the prayer and accept Christ, it doesn't mean your life's immediately changed in that moment and everything that you do. But from that moment, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and there should be changes happening in your life. And as time goes, you should be able to look back and be able to see those changes. There should be a change in the behaviors in our lives. Before we were saved, we answered for our actions to those around us, to ourselves, and maybe to the authorities. And... When we live like that, we're living to self. When you answer to yourself for your actions, it would be easy to, to justify just about anything that benefited you. you know, if you're living for yourself and you do something wrong, but it's for your own benefit, you get some, something out of it, when all you do is answer to yourself, it's easy to justify that. But we, we answer above all to God for our actions. And in doing so, we die to ourselves and we live for Christ. So when we take our actions and we look at our lives, we should be able to see that we're answering to Christ. We're trying to remove those things in in our lives that Christ would have us not do. As we grow in our walk with Christ, we'll find ourselves less and less, we'll find ourselves living less and less for ourselves and in our actions and more and more for others and for Christ, just as Christ would live. When you examine your daily life, who are you living for? Who are we living for? Ourselves or God? Are we putting others above ourselves? Then verse 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So God calls us to be holy just as he is holy. God's molding us into the image of Christ throughout our lives. It's a process that's going to continue for the rest of our lives. And we should submit to God's molding hands as he works in us. and He shapes us and keeps molding us into that image. We want to be submissive to it. The molding into the image of Christ can be soft little nudges in us, pushing us with the Holy Spirit, leading us and guiding us to make small little changes in our lives. And other times, he's breaking off large pieces that don't belong in the final final piece. That small chipping away isn't that difficult to get through. We feel those little pushes and we make small little changes in our lives. Maybe we get up a little earlier. Maybe we pray a little in the morning. You know, small changes we might make in our lives. But when God comes and breaks off a big piece, a large piece of our life that we're living, that can be life-changing and it should be life-changing. We may need to adjust the entire way that we live our lives but we, remember, we need to remember that God's sculpting us into Christ's image. That when they take off those big pieces of our life that don't belong, it can be difficult. There are things that we might enjoy in our lives and that we grasp on and hold on to and we don't want to let go. It's that one sin that kind of really draws us and we all have our weaknesses, the things that we fall, you know, fall into in our lives. And when God pushes those out of our lives and helps us to remove them, our life will change. We just have to remember that you know, God sculpted us in the image of Christ and just to be submissive to it. In one way or another, it's helping to remove what's part of, not part of the final piece that we're supposed to be. And we, it's all being done according to God's perfect will.
Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter's writing for us to live out our lives and live out our time as foreigners with reverent fear because we call on a God who judges impartially. We know that God loves each and every one of his creation. We are all created in his image and he cares for each and every one of us. And we can see that in 2 Peter 3.9 where he says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants us all to be saved. That's the goal, is that we all be saved. Unfortunately, we all have free will, and not everybody chooses. So we know that God loves each one of us, and we're created like that, and that he doesn't want anybody to perish, but those who end up in hell, they'll get there by their own choice. They'll have chosen not to believe the gospel message. They'll have chosen not to accept the salvation that Christ offers, and it's offered freely to everyone, each and every one of us and all those out there living in the world. Christ died to pay for all of our sins. Christ didn't come for for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. And they do that because they're living in this world. We try not to live in this world, but they're living in the world, and they enjoy the pleasures of their sins. They don't want to make changes in their lives. It's a difficult thing to do. When they hear that the lifestyle they're living is not part of God's plan for them, that it's not what they should be called to do, they turn from the gospel message. It's painful to think that they have to lay down their sins and make changes in their life. To accept Christ would mean they'd they'd recognize that and that they're living in sin and they'd have to change the way that they're living. And they're comfortable in their sin. So they, they choose not to believe and they... They choose the path to hell instead of the path to heaven. We're called to live out our time as foreigners. This is because we're no longer citizens of this world. We're no longer living in this world of those who choose not to accept Christ. We've chosen to accept Christ in our lives. And because of that, we're now foreigners. We're citizens of heaven. When we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we received the Holy Spirit to live in us. And with it, we got a new passport. It's not a passport you can go down to the post office and pick up like the ones we have here in this world. But it's a passport <coughs> excuse me. It's a passport that is sealed on our heart by God. We're granted citizenship into heaven with it. So we are to live our lives as heavenly citizens with reverent fear and awe of God. He created everything we see, everything we know, and everything we ever will see or know. He's mightier and greater than any ruler that the world has ever known. That reverent fear should direct us to make changes in our lives. Continually being directed by the Holy Spirit living in us, we should listen and submit to that and make those changes as they come up in our lives. Verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not, by perishable, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. All things in this world will perish, even silver and gold. Our ancestors have handed down an empty way of life all the way back to Adam and the original sin. And we were redeemed from that life through God's great plan. And so what were we redeemed with? It was not perishable like gold and silver. Gold and silver will last a long time, but as everything in this world, it will all be destroyed, it will all perish. 
And we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He was the perfect sacrifice, an imperishable sacrifice. His payment to redeem us does not fade. It won't disappear. And once we accept that salvation, we can't be pulled from God's hands. We're, it, we have that salvation for eternity. It is there that every person that chooses to accept, but that's the key. We must accept it. If we don't accept it, then we're turning from it. And it's that belief in that precious blood that did remove our sin, and that's what grants us access into heaven. Verse 20 and 21. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world and was revealed to us, revealed in the last times for us. It's all part of God's perfect plan for our salvation. He knew from the beginning that some would turn away and that we would fall into sin and there had to be a way for us to get salvation. God created us to have fellowship with us. And the only way for us to have fellowship is if we're saved and be able to spend eternity with him. But he didn't want us to be like robots where he just made us submit to his will and that was it. He wanted us to choose because the only true fellowship is if somebody chooses to have, a, have fellowship. You know, we have friends and if you, you don't have a friend because you force them to be your friend. You have a friend because you've both chosen to have fellowship and be friends. It's the same with God. He created us and he wanted us to choose him just as he chose us. The only way that we have that is if we were able to have some path to salvation. And the only path that there is, is through Christ. And so even before creation, Christ was chosen to be part of that perfect plan for salvation for us. It's through Christ that we believe in God who raised and glorified Christ. Our faith and hope are in God. When, we're con- when we are confused about why things happen in our lives, and we need to remember to trust in the Lord and not in our own understanding like we mentioned before. God's plan is greater than us, and we need to trust him and work to remove sin from our own lives. I can look, at be- look back at times in my life where things would go wrong, and I'd think, you know, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. You know, what, what did I do to deserve this to happen? And there's nothing. It wasn't, it wasn't fair, and the life, our lives aren't necessarily fair. It's just part of God's plan. I wasn't, I needed to try and, I felt like I needed to try and figure out why it was happening, but all the trials that I've gone through, they've helped to transform me closer to the image of God. I've learned some, patience, understanding, compassion, and a lot of other things. I haven't fully learned those, obviously, because I'm still living in this fleshly body and in this world, but I've learned a lot of those, and all of them helped me to serve God in one capacity or another. You know, God was preparing me preparing me for things that I had no idea were to come. I had no clue, you know, the direction my life was heading. I had a completely different, I was a completely different person 15 years ago. You know, I would never have thought that I'd be going to church regularly or teaching over at the children's ministry or teaching the youth or much less up here teaching a message to you. It's the only way that any of that's possible is through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in my life. It's not by my choice that I find myself here today. You know, it's only by the call of God that I do this. It's, I, I would choose not to be up here rather than be up here. Though it, it definitely would be easier not to be doing it. So we submit our lives to what God calls each of us to do in his service. And we need to recognize that 
the changes that God makes in our lives so that we can grow in our faith and so that we can trust in the hope that we all have for a future that's been redeemed through him. Verses 22 and 23. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So we've been purified by obeying the truth, the truth of God. Since we have now been purified, we should have sincere love for each other. And the word for sincere in the original Greek is anipokritos, which is the opposite of the Greek word hypokritis, which I can imagine you've already figured out that word means hypocrite. So when an A and an N is placed in front of that, it becomes unhypocrite. So we're to be sincere in our love for each other. We're not to be hypocritical about the way that we act in our love towards each other. It's something that should be pure of our heart. And the love that we have, we, should, we shouldn't love somebody on the outside and then internally we're like, eh, I don't really care about them. I just, you know, at church I want to look good and show the love towards them. But it's the word, you know, to be that unhypocrite. It's a sincere love. And the only way we can have that sincere love is because the Holy Spirit is in us. You know, we, our fleshly bodies, we... We try to do one thing and our mind takes us somewhere else or we do something else. But the spirit is what gives us the ability to have that true love for each other, to really care for others deeply and truly. So we've been born again. Our earthly bodies were born of a perishable seed. I know we, we all know too well how the perishable qualities of the bodies that we live in now. And you know, as we break down and our bodies are going to fade and eventually die, it's It's perishable. But when we accept Christ and we believe, we're reborn of an imperishable seed. And verses 24 and 25 is quoted out of Isaiah 46 through 8. It says, For all people are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So we all perish, just like the grass of the field. Sun comes up. I know my front yard's like that, and... You know, the, through the winter you get lots of rain and all the green comes up and then the sun of the, the, sun of the summer comes and it all gets burned away. It all just dies there. And so we're just like that. We're, we get burned up by the sun and we just fade just like everything else in this world. But when we're born again of Christ, of the word of God, the word of the Lord endures forever. And we're, when we're in Christ, we too will endure forever just as God's love for us will endure. And that was a word preached to those scattered that Peter is writing to, and it's a word that's preached to us as well. So now we get into chapter 2. And this is where the section kind of, the chapter 2 follows that God chose us. So in verses 1 through 3, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy, envy, and slander of any kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that we've been born again, we're, to be in, we're instructed to rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Those sound a little bit like Les's teaching last week on dirty clothes. You know? 
I think some of us need to be hosed off and rid ourselves of those things, just like he was talking about last week. So since we're reborn, Peter says, like a newborn, we should crave spiritual milk, which is the word. Just like a baby needs milk to grow, we need milk to grow spiritually as well. We should crave this as, you know, we've tasted that the Lord is good, and so we should crave more of that, and we should continue to drink that milk. We should also continue to grow just like a babe until we eat solid food. God doesn't want us to be stagnant in our Christian walk. He wants us to grow. And so as we drink that milk and we get more of the word, we start to grow. And just like a baby grows tired of milk and wants to start eating solid food, we should start craving the meat of the word as well. And so not just the milk, but we really want to bite into it and dig and get the meat, the deeper understanding of the word. And in verses 4 through 10, kind of a, a long section here. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. From the scripture it says, See, I lay, down, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, that you, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, or become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were dis- destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter writes, as we come to him, the living stone, Christ is the living stone. He is our rock. He's our solid foundation to build our faith upon. He was rejected by humans, but is chosen and precious to God. He is the stone that was rejected and became the cornerstone, the cornerstone that our faith is built upon. We also have been chosen by God, and we are precious to him as well. We also are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. What are spiritual sacrifices? Uh, Just to name a few, you could have a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of help to man, sacrifice of our very lives. And then next it reads, we are a royal priesthood. So who in the Old Testament were the priests, the ones who made the sacrifices? It was the Levites. They were, there was a separation of priests and kings. The kings came from other tribes, and the Levites are the only ones designated to be priests from the line of Aaron. So you can see that there was a prohibition of being both priest and king or royalty. So how is it that we are a royal priesthood? Christ is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And he was greater than Abraham, as we can see in Genesis 14, when Abraham is returning from defeating the kings and saving his nephew Lot and bringing everybody back and 
without any loss or anything through the work of God, Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. So we're of the order of Melchizedek just as Christ, since we are in Christ. We belong to Christ, and because of that, we also are royalty. But we are, all, we are also priests. So when we accept Christ, we become members of that royal priesthood with Christ, and with that come our priestly duties. So we are to make sacrifices to God similar to those like the Levitical priests did, that they would go and they'd go to the temple and they would sacrifice uh, all the different things from doves to bulls and everything. They're making all their sacrifices there. The difference with ours is basically just the type of sacrifice that we're making. Here it speaks of spiritual sacrifices. And in Romans 12.1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So how do we do that? What are the things that we can offer as sacrifice? Like we said before, a broken spirit, contrite heart, sacrifice of praise, sacrifice to help men, sacrificing of our very lives. Those are the spiritual sacrifices we mentioned before. But we're to be humble before God. We're to praise God as a sacrifice and help others and even giving up our lives for others. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. We should have that sacrificial spirit. We're called to sacrifice ourselves. Not a sacrifice of convenience, but a true sacrifice. We'd give our, we should give our time to help others. We should be able to serve God. We should give of our money. Since it isn't ours to begin with, it belongs to God, and we're only entrusted to make good use of it. We could go on missions, just like you know, Eric's over in Cambodia now. Uh, spend time witnessing as some of them go out to the malls on the weekends and, and share the, the gospel message through the good person test. We should be sharing the gospel with others, discipling others. We all have something, some kind of a spiritual gift given from God that, that he wants us to use. And it's using those gifts and offering that which God calls us to offer is what we should be doing. Sacrifice by its very definition means that we should be giving something up. It's not of us, but it's to give up and to give something for God. So are we just giving, quote-unquote, sacrifice to the Lord, or are we giving the best that we have, a true sacrifice? And we look at the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Now, they both gave offerings to the Lord, and Cain's offering was not pleasing to the Lord. Abel gave of the best of the first fruits of the flocks he had, and it was pleasing to the Lord. So is that you know, sacrifice we're giving, like I said, is it just a quote-unquote sacrifice like Cain was doing? Cain gave of, of the fruits he had, but it, it wasn't pleasing to God. It wasn't the best that he had. It wasn't a true sacrifice, giving of what he, he himself would want to have, but because of that, he wanted to sacrifice and give it to God. That's what Abel did. Is that the life that we're leading, where we're giving a true sacrifice? You know, how are we spending our money and our time is it for God and others, or is it for ourselves? It's not to say that if God's blessed you, he doesn't want you to enjoy that blessing. There's a reason that God blesses us, and we should be able to take part in enjoying the blessing he gives us. But we should also, when we're blessed, use that to bless others. We should be able to pass that along and, and let others be blessed as well.
Do we give up things in our lives so that we can serve others? Are are we willing to do whatever God calls us to do, whatever it'll cost? It's it's hard for a lot of us to to let go of those things in our lives. And it's only when we recognize that everything that we have, even the breath that we breathe, it all belongs to Christ. It all belongs to God. We would have nothing if it wasn't for him. He created us and created everything that we know. And so what we have, we only have through his mercy and his grace. I challenge you and all of us to look at our lives, to see if we are truly living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, or we live in our life without sacrifice and only pleasing to ourselves. And so today we're also going to celebrate communion, touching on the same point of sacrifice. You know, Jesus at that last supper, he gave instructions that as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. You know, Christ gave his life as a sacrifice. You know, we're talking about sacrifice and true sacrifice. Are we willing to, to give everything of ourselves up to our very lives for God and to help others? Because that's what God calls us to do. That's what God did. God gave up his only son to let him die on the cross for us. It was only through him that we have the salvation that we have now, the hope that we can hold for the future. We want to remember that sacrifice that God made, offering up his son to pay the debt that we, as man, that we've incurred. The wages of sin are death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The only way we have that is that God paid for that sin that we, we owe. That payment was made with the death of Christ, and the gift was fulfilled in the perfect blood of that sacrifice. So at this time, I'd like to call up Kim to to play a song as we pass out the communion and have the ushers come up and hand out the the communion. Then hold on to it and we'll partake together at the end.